what is up people september 8th 2016 and we are back 12th episode of the mma ratings podcast to be honest i'm not sure what episode this is i just like to number them i think that's better so i picked a number at 10 to um Decided to start there. So, yeah, this is episode 12 because I have decided that it is episode 12. I am here to talk about the world of mixed martial arts. My co-host, Sean Humes, will be on sometime tonight. He just sent me a text asking for a few minutes, so I expect him to be on shortly because talking about the sport. So we have quite a bit to cover. Of course, we have the fact that UFC 203, and even though it features a main event bout surrounding the heavyweight title, Bay Milchitz fights Alistair Overing. Most of the commentary isn't focused on the big men. Instead, it is focused on one named Phil Brooks, better known as Punk, Chick Magnet Punk, um, one of the biggest, bigger pro wrestling stars in recent memory. But he's crossing over into the world of mixed martial arts, and that has caused quite a controversy. So we will be talking about that. We'll talk about the main event. Does that stand out on the card, giving our predictions, news from this week, quite a bit of news, some big matchups announced. And more. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into the conversation for this evening. Before I do that, um, I would like to remind you, my name is Rafael Garcia. You can reach me at rgarcia underscore sports. See what I'm talking about in the world of MMA, grappling. It's a big grappling event this weekend at EBI. Professional football, you know, that starts tonight with my Carolina Panthers going up against the Denver Broncos. Um, you can catch my other podcast, Technical Foul. Talk to me, you can hear me ramp, see me rambling about pro wrestling, just about everything. Um, R Garcia underscore sports. Be sure to give me a follow on the good old Twitter. You can hit me up there. Um, yeah, content on MMARatings.net, and that's where we allow you, the viewers, to rank all of the fights. Let us know what you think about the fights, how great they are, how bad they are, how huh they are, uh, from top to bottom of the card, the only site that allows you to rank each and every fight as you see fit. So first things first, let's do a little recap and talk about uh, UFC Fight Night 93. Obviously, you know, that's where we saw Josh Barnett submit Andre Arlovsky. 
heavyweight main event there. And the first question you know, I always bring to mind is when I watch heavyweight fighters do their thing is like you have to wonder, you have to wonder what's going on with this division. Um, Arnett as a world contender at this time, and you know he was a he was a name over at Strikeforce and Affliction, and now where he's back in UFC, he's he's been doing pretty he's been pretty productive for the most part in this run. But you have to wonder just how how volatile that heavyweight division is because again, remember, no one's defended the, no one's been able to defend the title multiple times since Brock Lesnar. Um, no one has really submitted themselves as a leader in this division in years. You know, um, I'm going to ask when Shawn comes on who he thinks the greatest heavyweight of all time is, but I recently, earlier this week, I heard a great argument for Alistair Overeem, especially if he finds a way to win this weekend. I mean, he's won in Dream, he's won in K1, he's won in Pride, you know, he's won just about everywhere been, and now he's in the UFC, one win away from being heavyweight champion of the world, and you have to wonder if he is the greatest champion of all time, uh, if that itself, if he is able to get a win this coming Saturday. But to go back to our conversation at UFC Fight 993, um, I, I, I'm not even going to lie. I would like to see Barnett get back into the title picture. I don't think he would be able to defeat someone like a Cain Velasquez that he would have to go through. Uh, I think he would have trouble with Wadoom. Um, maybe even trouble with Travis Brown. So, well, I, actually, I take that back. I forgot he already has lost to Travis. So you got to wonder. You got to wonder if he really is a contender and if his time at the top is going to be well uh, documented. Schwan, how you doing, man? You just joined us. Yeah, good. How about you? How are you doing, sir? Doing good, man. Doing good. A little under weather, but all good. All good's over here. Um, so we are talking MMA, man. We're talking UFC Fight Night '93 and that main event. Um, what were your thoughts after the show, man? Uh, is Josh Barnett a real contender for the uh, for the world? I think. Uh, I mean, as we discussed last week, just because of the the average age of the main heavyweights at the top of the division contender because most of those guys aren't in their athletic primes. And even and though they have experience and they've proven themselves, a lot of guys don't have the fully rounded skill set that Barnett has. Barnett is functional at the long range. He's good at boxing range. And on the inside, he just he's a terrifying force with the volume and the pressure he puts on people, as well as being a good, a competent wrestler and an exceptional submission guy. I mean, he's probably one of the best, if not all-round skilled guys in heavyweights in the world. I mean, maybe Overeem, maybe Fedor at some point had a better skill set. A lot of the heavyweights have one or two of the skills. Barnett actually has them all, as does Alistair Overeem. So out of the actual, as far as experience and technical skills, him and Overeem would be the best in division and pretty much in the world in any organization. So you can't say that he's not he's not a contender. You you can't say that given his skill set, 
his experience and his actual his dear his durability. Okay, okay, that's a, that's some pretty good breakdown there. I actually wrote a piece about the um, heavyweight division, and the average age is thirty four years six months, I believe, of the top fifteen. Top fifteen guys. That is definitely a high average age when you think about it, and when you think about it in the realm of athletic primes and professional sports. Uh, what do you What do you do next with um, Andre Orlovsky? Does he here or does he stick around for a few more years? Well, the good thing for Orlovsky is unlike the fights with Stipe um, Overeem. He essentially was able to go rounds. He had some moments. He had Barnett in trouble. You know, competent in the grappling exchanges. He showed that he was still athletic and dynamic in the stand-up exchanges. So he at least put up, put forward a good enough performance where you can say less durable or less seasoned guy would have pulled that out because the other guys, the younger guys, for the craft to work out of the bad spots. And even some of the older guys, they just don't have the skills. I mean, Barnett is a – I can't overstate how skilled he is and how seasoned he is to work out the bad spots, know which spots to pick to to ride things out, know which spots to turn it on in. So, I mean, oh, um, excuse me, Arvlowski put forth a good performance against a guy who's a top three, four heavyweight. And um, at least this time he didn't get knocked out. He took some heavy punches, took a lot of shots, and he got hurt but he was able to work his way through and survive. So I think he put on a good enough show that he can move forward. I just don't think he's an elite heavyweight anymore. But once again, given how thin the heavyweight division is, you're only, you know, he could just as soon turn around and start knocking guys out again because the skill sets are so limited. And a lot of the guys who are around his age never had his athleticism in his prime. And since the other guys are just as old, he's still probably one of the top top three or four athletes in the division still, even though he's nowhere near what he used to be in his prime. On that, man, I was actually having an interesting thought about the heavyweight division uh, the other day where he finds himself losing to Daniel Cormier again if that fight is set up and he drops a fight to Cormier or if he, let's say he drops a fight to John Jones. He could easily move up to the heavyweight division. I think that he would a lot of the guys up there, you know, maybe someone who can that storm and get through like the first couple of uh, shots would be able to deter him. But man, he could cause havoc. Even Daniel Cormier, if he decides to move up um, because he can't, if he loses, if he drops the belt at some point in time, or he has starts having issues with the weight cut, the, heavy, the heavyweight division is wide open for one of these guys from 205 to kind of step up and take over that weight class. Um, Johnson, his power is just so incredible. And the thing is, he's not just a big hitter and a strong guy. He's a very dynamic guy. He's a he's very sharp off the counters with kicks and punches. He's he's learned to get a, a very good jab. And his defensive wrestling and scrambling ability has really improved. To be quite honest, a lot of the light heavyweight guys have better all round wrestling than the large. As far as it's like actual accomplishments in wrestling their their wrestling is a lot better even their mma wrestling is a lot better than what you would see in heavyweight the pace is a lot faster a lot of guys are more dynamic so his power and his power carries over he would it'd be hard for him to he'd have he'd have to throw more volume to get the same effect 
but against guys who are like he's two times faster than two times more explosive two times quicker and has quicker feet and hands than in stand-up exchanges uh, there's a better chance he like mows through the first i don't know anywhere from the 12th best heavyweight all the way to maybe the fifth or fourth best heavyweight most guys just won't be able to deal with his hand speed foot speed explosiveness and his power if they can't get their hands on him consistently and he's going to be so much quicker than them that he's going to light he's going to light, light a lot of guys up i mean him gustafson because he's running out of options at light heavyweight those would be guys i would think could go up to light go up to heavyweight and compete i don't know that they'd beat the kane velasquez's i don't know that they'd beat the steepies but they'd have chances to even against we're doing the bigger guys they'd have opportunities to just based off their athleticism i think that's against the bigger guys might be where it stops but i mean they could easily get ranked in the top seven top five if they have the right matchups and since most of these guys are on the physical decline now would be the time to catch them so I, i'd agree with you 100 percent yeah that's something i would i would be interested to see um definitely in the um speaking of someone in their future at light heavyweight. What do you think about Ryan Bader, man? Um, I know we talked about him last week as well. The highest win he's going to, like, is he going to continue just getting these semi-big wins, like, you know, like the mid-tier wins, but when he gets in there with these premier guys, when he gets in there with the elite title contenders, title eliminator fights, man, he always just seems to, uh, to, to drop them. So what do you do with this guy next? Like, do you ask him to go up to heavyweight? Do you kind of... Or do you let him stick around at 205 and just kind of be the perennial gatekeeper? I mean, I think you just leave him at 205. I mean, really make him do anything. But I'm just thinking you just let him stay at 205, let him keep doing what he's doing. If at some point he's able to and get that title shot, well, all the power to him. In the meantime, all he's doing is clearly establishing the line between the guys who who are just at the precipice of becoming elite and those guys who are. If you can't get past Bader, most likely you're not a legit contender for the title. And that, that's essentially it. A lot of the guys who have beaten him have gone on to title fights. You know, I mean, Anthony Johnson is moving on, is moving on to a title fight. He, got the, he, got, he had to fight Glover first, but essentially he beat Bader and he would have been up for a title shot anyways. John Jones beat Bader on the way to a title shot. It seems like that's almost the uh, the watermark you've got to pass to prove that you're a good enough fighter to get to that next stage. So you just let him keep on fighting. If he finds some way to get past it, sure. If he doesn't, then he's just what he is. He's a gatekeeper who's just testing people. The only problem becomes, once again, is the division so thin that if he keeps on knocking off every single up-and-comer, then essentially what you're doing is you're ruining any chance of having new and fresh contenders because he keeps knocking them off. He keeps knocking off those guys. And while it's good that he proves that they're not elite, at the same time, it stunts the, the, it stunts the division because you're not getting new guys coming through. He's cutting them short. So then he might become a liability at some point because he, he's never able to do what it takes to become elite or to put himself in position for that title fight. And he keeps on knocking anybody off who has an exciting style or any sort of story that they can sell that would give them – that would would take the division to the next level and allow them to get more eyes on them and to maybe flesh out the division a little bit. So it's kind of a catch 22, but as far as, as far, I mean, you can't stop him from being a light heavyweight if he doesn't want to. And actually I don't think his style translates over to the heavyweight division as well as some of the other guys. I mean, like I said, he's still a very good athlete. He's improved in his standup. His wrestling is good, but it's, he seems to crack when a guy can 
threaten him with doing grave harm to him. And everybody at the heavyweight division, for a guy like Bader, who's not really defensively sound or quick of foot, every guy at that division is capable of hurting him badly. And when he's in fighter, he's in with fighters who can hurt him badly, he seems to perform terribly. He, he just mentally breaks down or gets desperate or gets one-dimensional and he gets finished or dominated every single time. It's happened every single time. And there's numerous guys in the heavyweight division with his style who can attack the limits of his style and put him in that position. So I don't think a move up to heavyweight is actually a very good move for him. I think light heavyweight is about where it stops, unless we're talking about mediocre, medi- very mediocre heavyweights. He can beat some of those, but I still think he struggles given his style and his physical skill set. Okay, okay. I can, I can rock with that um, analysis there. So continuing down the card, man, um, there wasn't a whole lot of people to kind of stand out. Um, the only other name that kind of caught my eye was one um, Ashley Evans-Smith. Uh, she's someone I kind of had my eye on for the last few fights. Did you catch her fight? Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, uh, I, I, don't, I was impressed with her performance just because she showed a sort of physicality and savagery and ability to, ability to finish. My only questions were, was it actually a matter of her being improved technically or was it just a matter of her facing an opponent who was so much less physical so much weaker so much smaller they had no room for margin as a person who trains and has competed yourself and i've never competed but i train you know that when you're facing a person who's got an athletic advantage and a size and power advantage your your margin for error is very small you know you can't you can't try to force a submission you can't get stuck in clinches and grappling exchanges you can't get stuck on the bottom. You can't make the wrong move and end up stuck in the bottom. You can't get pushed up against the cage. There's so many things you can't do because that a person of comparable skill with superior athleticism, size, and power will just wear you down. Even if you can take it to them for a few moments, the longer it goes and the longer they can get their hands on you, the more they chip away at you and eventually overwhelm you. And it seemed like she just overwhelmed her opponent. Her opponent just physically couldn't get her respect with any power, couldn't get her offer, and her stamina and durability couldn't stand up under the constant duress of Evan Smith's pressure. So my question to her is, what does she do against the bigger, stronger girls in the division who she can't manhandle like that? You know, does she do that to Julia Pena? Does she do that to Elizabeth Phillips? Girls who can kind of hold their own and make her work in those exchanges, who can hit her and get her respect? She didn't do it to to Raquel Pennington. Raquel Pennington made an adjustment and finished her. But against a girl who just didn't have that physicality, she was able to just look like a world beater. Yeah, no, um, I could definitely get with you on that because I know I, I I was looking into some analysis that kind of put it at the I put the idea out there that her opponent was definitely more green or, or recognized, which kind of gave her the advantage. Um, Ashley Evans isn't going to be someone who kind of pushes to the top of the, of, of the division. I think she'll be like a mid, mid-level talent, someone who wins one, lose one wins two, maybe loses one, like really push through through the top of the rankings. But honestly, looking at the whole card itself, she was probably the only other individual there that was uh, really worth mentioning and really worth kind of um, uh, at the on the card last Saturday. Yeah, the, the there weren't a lot of really scintillating matchups there. Evan Smith works in because – the bantamweight division, female bantamweight division, is in flux. The title's like changing every other month, and there's a lot of girls 
who are trying to jockey for a, a chance to become a contender to get that title. So her performance means something because the top five, top seven of Bantamweight is, is completely in flux. People are winning, losing left and right. So her putting a stamp on a performance and winning impressively sets her up for a bigger fight, maybe possibly with a name that could possibly get her into that fringe contender spot and put her in position to possibly challenge for the title. So that's, that's why her fight matters. A lot of the other fights, it's people who, are, who might matter moving forward, but right now their fights aren't change, changing the direction of the division. They're not groomed as potential challengers for the title. They're not really thought of as blue-chip prospects who are predicted to take over MMA in the next – or take over their division in the next year or so. And uh, if that's not the case, then, you know, I mean, they're interesting fights to watch. or stuff you can learn from them. But it's not the kind of fights that's going to draw the attention and the time, you know, that most people are going to devote to bigger names and people who've, got, who've proven a little bit more against a better caliber of opposition. Yeah, good point there. I would like to see her um, – uh, what's her name? Caitlin Chukigan. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she just beat Lauren Murphy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah, she won that fight in, uh, on short notice from Jersey. Yeah, so I, I think that that's kind of like someone to kind of – that's a good fight right there to kind of breed both of them, you know, to see who's going to next uh, name must, or next kind of – You must not like – Someone to watch. You must not like Evan Smith very much because um, the other girl, I can't say her name. You said – I messed it up every time I've tried to say it. Her style – Caitlin, her style is the antithesis of what Evan Smith likes to do with that footwork and the pot shot and working the jab, working the angles, baiting and then countering. So if Smith fights her, we're going to find out real quick if Smith is actually technically and strategically improved or she's just a big, strong wrecking ball. Because if she hasn't improved, she's just going to get out-hustled, out-positioned, and out-worked to a decision loss. Smith, uh, Caitlin is legit. She is very legit. Chris, Chris stand-up. Great distance management and uh, – above average defense takedown and ground defense. So she'd be a problem stylistically for Evan Smith, but it'd be a good fight. It'd be a fight to determine who we she is and what she is. Um, since we're talking about fights that have been, you know, fights for the future, have, there's a couple of big fights that were announced um, this week. First and foremost, I want to talk about the rumor, rumor. I believe it's been made official now. I'm not exactly sure. I saw some news about it today in passing. But the Donald Cerrone-Robbie Lawler fight, man, are you as excited? It's what we're going on at UFC 205. Excited for that as everyone else is? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good fight that answers questions for both guys. It, it's, it's, it's an all-action fight, and it's a fight that's going to tell you if Lawler's really lost his fastball or he's, his chin has been permanently dented and he's on a steep decline. And it's going to let me know. Even, everybody else has been very impressed by what Cerrone's done at welterweight and I've been impressed by the technical improvements but I haven't seen him face a guy who's got the athletic skills and the technical skills to really test him past a certain point so him beating Lawler would be the most impressive thing he's done at welterweight and it'd be the thing that lets me know that he's really a legit at welterweight so the, I, I'm really excited about that fight that's a huge bout for Cerrone if he gets that win there's no way you can deny him a title shot at welterweight after all he's done over the last few years. Uh, I don't know if I can buy him winning that fight, but he has the technique to definitely 
enough. Like I think he's just as technically sound as someone like a Roy McDonald is, but he has more. He has more weapons that can um push him towards winning the fight. I don't see him taking a lot of damage in a bout like this, but like I would not hesitate to watch this fight at on any on on a moment's notice. I'd watch it multiple times a day if I could. Yeah, my, my biggest question, I'm, I'm actually a Cerrone fan. He's really cleaned up his striking, his, his boxing range. He's gotten a lot better. His footwork, punch placement, throwing combination. His hands have improved tremendously. His kicks and knees have always been good, but he used his, like, step-in knee and his counter knee and things in the kicks. He used those to kind of mass his suspect boxing. And since he started working with Brandon Gibson out of uh, ja- Jackson Winklejohn, his, his boxing range has actually become a strength, and his – work rate and his ability to mix up shots and mix up the punching and kicking has been has begun to be top notch he used to be very predictable with his punch kick combinations and now he's a lot sharper and a lot more fluid the only thing i have to be question concerned about is the guys he's beat at welterweight i mean the he beat one guy who moved up who couldn't grapple i mean that that was just a guarantee the dude just could not grapple so he finished him he fought cote and Cote's tough, but Cote's been in a lot of wars. He's been around for, what, 13 years or so? And he, he's a tough, strong guy, but he's never beaten a top-tier guy ever in his career. He's slow, and he's offensively limited. He gets by on durability, veteran craftiness, and ability to recover and work his way out of tough spots. But technically speaking, he's nothing exceptional. He's not hard to hit. He's not hard to get to. He's not hard to get away from. So... That one didn't really impress me. Rick Story, I thought would be more of a test. But once again, Rick Story is only effective in a certain range of striking. He's only really consistently effective in a certain range of striking. And even at Donald Cerrone's worst, he was a much better all-round striker than Story. So the win- those wins prove something to me because he's beating t- good, tough guys. But he's not beating anybody who's got the technical acumen to really challenge him on the feet, especially now that he's got his boxing range straightened out. And he's not facing guys who are murderous punchers and guys who have close to or top-end athleticism, which Robbie Lawler, he's still one of the quicker, faster, more explosive, and more powerful guys in division. And if Tyrone Woodley didn't completely ruin his chin, it's hard for me to see Cerrone beating him because Lawler takes a better shot than him. Lawler gives a better shot than him. And Lawler essentially is, in my opinion, the more explosive and more dominating athlete. The question is, is Lawler going to be, is he going to show the full skill set? Is he going to do the kicks and punches and the knees? Or is he just going to lumber and plod into boxing range and fight one round and take a round off and fight another round and take a round off and then try to kill Cerrone in the fifth round if it gets that far? The question is, is Robbie going to use all the skills and all the savvy? Because if he does, he can he can kick with Cerrone for in, in spots, and his footwork should be good enough to get in and and create counter opportunities for him to get to the body and then eventually get to the head on Cerrone. And that's how I would see the fight going. But once again, I don't know what Robbie Lawler has left. I don't know how hard he's going to train. I don't know how hard he's developing his skill set. If he's working on all those things and really addressing to make the run for the title, he's going to beat Cerrone because he's still, he's a vicious body puncher as well as a knockout guy. He is a vicious vicious body puncher. And I don't care what anybody tells me. Cerrone doesn't like it to the body and gaining a couple pounds and beating up on a bunch of second and third tier welterweights isn't going to change that. Nobody's gotten to his body yet. And if Lawler's in the right mindset and he's actually 
recovered and he's working on his skills and he wants to make a legitimate run at that title again, he's going to show all the tools. And if he gets to Cerrone's body, it's over, in my opinion, until I see differently. If he gets to Cerrone's body with any consistency, that fight will go downhill and downhill fast. It'll be exciting, but, but it, won't, it won't end well for Cerrone unless he can keep that range and maintain that distance and keep him off him. Or Lawler's just too old and too dull as far as his skills sharpening for him to close that distance and, and get to where, where he needs to be to really take advantage of Cerrone. Yeah, I definitely think that that's one of those fights that's going to be like – it's going to go down like a fiery flint, like ball of just craziness. Like someone – it'll be like – it'll be one of those fights where people are standing on their feet screaming from start to finish because it may end very quick or it'll be a brawl from class. Uh, it definitely excited me as soon as I saw the announcement. I saw the initial rumor, and now that I see that, I believe it's legit for um, UFC 205, the one in New York. I'm excited. I think that gives that card a huge boost. Uh, it, I would, if it, I was playing Booker, if I was in charge for the night, I would make that the main card opener um, for the, for the evening. But you know, I'm I'm not neither here nor there. You know what it also does? There's a lot to offer in that fight with those two guys going at it. It also addresses, I mean, uh, weeks ago, when uh, before he fought Woodley, uh, we had actually discussed how Lawler says he felt like he wasn't getting the attention he deserves as a veteran and as a champion. So by fighting Donald Cerrone, he's getting to fight an actual name because he fought Johnny Hendricks, but Hendricks isn't really, he's a name in MMA, but he's not a name like as far as having a huge fan base or having a crossover appeal. Same thing with beating Carlos, Con Carlos Condit and Roy McDonald. Great MMA superstars. They're not mainstream. They're not even close to mainstream superstars. Um, Donald Cerrone's only been in the division for like, you know, what, a couple of months, a year maybe? And he's, one of, he's probably the biggest actual legitimate name as far as pay-per-view buys and ratings draw and fan base outside of MMA in the division. In fact, the three, three most popular um, – three most popular welterweights, none of them really started off in the division. Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor, and Donald Cerrone are the most popular welterweights in the division. They're the ones who are money fights. They're the ones who are going to get you sponsors, kicking in money. They're the ones who are going to get you high pay-per-view buys. They're the ones who are going to get more eyes on you and increase your payday. So Lawler's finally getting that name fight he wants. It's not as good as getting Nick Diaz or even Nate Diaz or Conor, but it's the best other option at welterweight right now. I definitely agree with you on that. I would um, also add GSP to that list with him coming back to the fight yeah. group um, kind of soon. So, yeah, if but yeah. Like, until, he does, until he does, though, until he officially is back in the UFC, you can only go with the guys who are there, and, and those three guys are the most popular welterweights in the world. Yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that there. Um Another big fight that was announced was um, the news that Diego Thiago Alves is dropping down to lightweight to face um, Al Iaquinta at UFC 205 as well. When I first read this news, man, I was kind of shocked because if we remember, this is the same pit bull that missed weight like what almost three times in a row at, at some point in time, and every time. <laughs> like, or was it wasn't it like three times in a row that he almost missed weight? That's how bad he was. Yeah, seriously. And then he started working with um, Mike Dolce, and he kind of got the welterweight cut down to a, a science. Losing, what, 20, 20 more pounds to drop down the lightweight? And, oh, man, I don't know how I feel about this. I think that's bad for 
him and for his career. I'm just concerned on how that's going to play out. Yeah, I've always, I always, I actually was on Twitter a couple of days ago, and I, I was actually ta- discussing how it seems like every time a fighter starts hitting roadblocks, and I get it sometimes, you know, a change is necessary. Instead of really addressing technical and strategical holes, level weight, and now I feel so much more healthier because I don't have to cut as much, or you know, I'm at a smaller weight, and I, I can bully these guys, and you know, there's a there's a price to pay for that because not everybody's body type can handle the cut. And if you can't, your recovery, your ability to recover from damage gets, in, gets impacted. Your ability to take damage gets impacted. Your ability to maintain a pace or maintain top-end power for extended periods gets damaged. And then it becomes a matter of your skills because now you can't fall back on your abilities. So if this is the best move for him, I mean, he's not really going anywhere at welterweight. But once again, I, I don't know that he's exhausted every avenue in regards to mastering and improving the finer points of his game so that he can have success at the weight class he was in. You know, is this just a way to quickly recharge his career? Because if he hasn't addressed certain technical and strategical holes, it's not going to end any better for him. And it's going to require a much more bigger commitment as far as diet, training, and focus for him to get down to it. And and that's going to mean he can't lean on his power. He can't lean on his chin. Those things won't be guaranteed. At a, and when you're dropping like 20 pounds, those things aren't going to be guaranteed. 15, 20 pounds, you're not guaranteed to have your chin or your power past the first few minutes of the cardio. You got to have your skills and your strategy on point. And his lack of textbook execution in a fight plan has been what's costing him. And bad cage IQ, dropping a weight class doesn't change that, especially not against a tough, durable, disciplined, and intelligent fighter like Aya Quinta. I mean, he's not, in my opinion, he's not a world beater, but, but he's not a guy you're just going to go in there and walk over and walk through and manhandle. That, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's that. Man, I'm, for real, I will be surprised to see if he makes the weight. Um, interesting part to me, whether or not he makes that weight cut, all the big fights were announced outside of the UFC. We have Jake Shields and John Fitch, who are fighting the same night as that UFC 205 car, but they're fighting for fighting a welterweight title. I believe that's November 12th. Is this fight too late or um, watching? I, I'm looking forward to it. But I'm not sure if the mainstream community would be interested in this bout any longer. Yeah, to be, I mean, as far as an MMA fan, it, it's kind of like, the, to a degree, it's like the poor man's version of the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. Like, it really is, like, seven years too late. I mean, it really is. It, it's still a good fight because both guys are very tough. They're very experienced. They've they competed at the highest levels. So you're not going to see a lot of sloppy fighting. You're not going to see a lot of stupid fighting. It'll be a tough competitive fight for as long as it goes, but it's a fight that could have been packaged better a couple years ago when both guys were on huge winning streaks and when both guys were still considered, you know, top top five, top five type fighters. So, I mean, I'll still watch it because it's two guys who I've been a fan of and their professionalism and their, their dedication to the craft. But um, as far as a fight that sells – it's not. It's not particularly sexy. It's not. You're, it's not guaranteed fireworks. You know, they're not. They're great grapplers. They're grinders. They're very disciplined and intelligent in the cage. But they're not the guys who have dynamic finishes on the feet or 
or on the ground. So, I mean, it's kind of like if you want to see a tough, good, quality, gritty fight where you're not going to be shortchanged in the effort, in the preparation, yeah, you, you watch that fight. But if you're looking for fireworks or charisma or something that's going to change the landscape of MMA, then you can you can skip that fight. It's it's not going to do that. No, I could definitely agree with you now. I'm almost more interested in seeing these two guys in a grappling match, like at an EBI or a Mitter Morris or something like that. I'm almost more interested in seeing them in that style matchup than MMA bout. Just my kind of opinion right now as competitive grappling continues to grow. I would much rather see them in that style of fight. Actually, I remember recently I watched a um, match. I think this was before Shoes joined the UFC, where these two actually did have a grappling super fight against each other that Fitch won. So I would love to see these two guys go at it again. Um, I think it would be something crazy to watch. Uh, like, um, submission Can I ask you a question? How do you feel about yeah. the WSOF always essentially holding cards on the same day as the UFC holds, like, major events? I mean, I know to a degree it gets them some more attention because, you know, people are trying to get as much MMA as they can, but it's kind of like having the college playoffs on the same – the college championship on the same day as the Super Bowl. Even if it does a big rating, you're taken away from it because there's an even big, bigger show going on. You, you understand where I'm coming from? Like – Final Four and the NBA Finals on the same day. Even they both might get huge ratings, but they're both taken away from each other because you have two big events that are drawing in a certain amount of eyes and a certain amount of attention. There's only so many resources. What do you think? What do you think is reasoning behind them trying to squeeze in the events on these big event nights of the UFC? You know, I think it's, it's a tactic where where they are trying to hotels, for lack of a better sense, where they figure, okay, if we have an event the same day the UFC has an event, people will find us almost by accident. Where that mentality comes from, it's not necessarily, you know, where they're trying to siphon off their viewers, but I think it's it's more of a, that's kind of, let's, let's ride the wave and get who we can get just by catching people um, that, that, that are flipping through the channels or let's get our news out there the same day where people are going to be Googling about mixed martial arts. So let's kind of get our, our news out there that same day and hopefully somebody will find it. I think it's just a, it's just a tactic to kind of ride, ride the coattails when people are going to be watching events, specifically mixed martial arts. I mean, do you, do you feel it's, it's beneficial, that it helps their product? Maybe it does. I don't know. You don't really, like, they're still around. I'm surprised they're still around at this point to even begin with. So maybe it is helping. Yeah, I actually trained with the guy who fights with them now, who, who used to find the UFC, um, uh, Colton Smith. Uh, actually, I actually got, been to a couple open mats he's ran and, you know, got to talk to him, got to train with him. And, you know, it's he didn't have, I asked him about it. He didn't have a, but I, I just kind of wonder, because since you cover MMA, it's like there's so much MMA to be covering, and here's the WSOF. Like, how much attention can you get? Are you just afraid that your own product can't stand on its own based off the fight cards you're presenting? You know, it's just one of those questions that kind of sticks with me over the years that they've been around. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, um, 
it's a difficult question, especially with them, Marlon Morales, um, and just, you know, just not having the greatest roster available, you know, it, it is it is okay to kind of question what they're doing. Um, but they're still around, man. They're still here, and they're still doing their uh, thing. Yeah, that's true. And that's better than a lot of people predicted for them. Definitely better. Um, let's talk about one last fight that was playing outside the UFC. We have a rematch set up in Bellator between Andre Koreshkov and Douglas Lima. Um, first fight. The first fight was pretty good. Uh, Koreshkov won it. Uh, unanimous decision there. Are you interested in this fight? I'm kind of looking forward to seeing it, especially with the way, especially with how improved Koreshkov has looked over the last few months, um, especially with or last few years since losing to Ben Askren. Uh, and now with Roy McDonald there, um, with my MVP still there. So, like, there's some there's some names in that welterweight division. Does this fight kind of interest you? And is it – I think it's a good opportunity for Koreshkov to become a bigger name in the sport. Well, it interests me because Koreshkov is, like, a legitimate I, – I don't know that he's elite because I, I haven't seen him in with elite welterweights, but he seems to have the talent and the skill set to be elite. That he improved so much is that – once Ben Askren left Bellator, opposition kind of fell off. I mean, Askren's wrestling was just such a dominating force in Bellator. He was just so far and away the better athlete and the better and the better wrestler and better grappler. He didn't he didn't need to have a full he didn't need to have a fully fleshed out game. He just dominated guys. He took them down and he suffocated them. Got he he held guys down when he wanted to and he did whatever he wanted to with them. So I thought Korshkov was light years ahead of the rest of the division. He just couldn't get past Askren. And now that Askren's out of the way, um, he's essentially just taken – he was the un, he was the uncrowned champion, and now he's become the crown champion. His timing, his footwork, his accuracy, and his power is amazing. I mean, in stand-up, I don't know too many guys who can really compete with him. Lima is also a very dynamic fighter. Um, I'm kind of interested to see what, what improvements he's made or if he's made any at all versus the same guy because – People can say they have improvements, but when you face different opponents, they give you different weaknesses and different strengths. To, so different strengths you have to avoid, different weaknesses you can attack. So you, you can't really always tell how much someone's improved when they're fighting a lesser opponent or a different one. When you fight the same guy who's on a roll now, we really see if you've improved because if he can do the same things he did to you before, then how can you say you've really improved? If he's doing the exact same things and handling you the same way he did before, you know, so it's interesting from that point because these two guys could compete in the UFC. These guys are, I would say, as far as talent-wise, our top 10, our top-end welterweights. So, I mean, it's a legitimate, exciting, well-matched fight, and I'll always pay attention to those. I, I can definitely agree with you on that, Tom. Looking forward to uh, just seeing an interesting fight outside of the UFC. I think there are still some fights that can be built outside of the octagon that still add, add value to the sport. And I think that this is one of them. I'm looking forward to seeing, and I was pretty excited when the um, five card was announced. But since we're talking about big events, you know, we can't pass tonight and not talk about UFC 203, which is set for this Saturday. Um, we're going to talk previews and predictions in a minute, but biggest storyline out of this show is clearly – um, circus, you know, he is stepping from the world of professional wrestling and making his mixed martial arts debut. Two and no, Mickey Gall. Uh, 
what do you think, man? How do, how is this going to go down? Uh, I I always like to be different than everybody else. I like to take a different perspective. But given that I literally know nothing about what CM Punk can do in a live fight, it's hard to say anything except that Mickey Gall, Mickey Gall, like, I mean, all the people I know and respect who, who always look at the finer points of things and, and, and kind of look at the subtle things, they're all going Gall and, and, and CM Punk's giving me nothing to say that he, he, he wins. I mean, I'm not saying he can't win, but I really know, have no idea, idea how he's going to react when it's live bullets and it's four-ounce gloves and it's a guy who's coming to really put hands on him, not just push him and test him. You know, other guys, you've at least seen them in fights, so you know what they're going to do in tough spots. With CM Punk, we, have, we literally have no idea. We know he knows how to perform in front of a crowd, but we have no idea form in a fight. And I can't even say he can't fight. The question isn't can he fight? The question is can he fight back? I know he can throw a punch and he can probably do a takedown and he can probably attempt a submission when he gets hit back. That's the question you have the first time you spar, the first time you fight, the first time you grapple. Yeah, you know what to do against somebody, but what happens if somebody gets you in a bad spot? Can you defend the takedown? Can you defend? Can you take the ground and pound and work through it? And I can't really pick him because he's given me nothing at all to base that pick on. You know, I could just say just for laughs, hey, I'm going with CM Punk. But I mean, if I'm actually trying to be taken seriously, he hasn't shown anything that says that he's going to win that fight. I've seen the sparring on the show, but that was that was kind of a while ago. And even then, you know, it's him just acclimating himself to the sport. So I. I I don't really know. I, I can't really say anything other than the fact that Mickey Gall is most likely going to beat him and beat him in a dominant fashion. And if by some reason Mickey Gall gets extended by CM Punk or God forbid loses to him, I'll have some explaining to do because that would be pretty much the biggest upset in MMA history. I mean, a non-combatant in his very first fight against a legitimately skilled and trained fighter and he wins. I don't care how he does it. And he, he finds some way to win and, and that's that's pretty much an upset. That that's pretty much Sports Center's leading story for the next three weeks. That pretty much shuts down Twitter as a functioning social media tool, because everybody will be like, "CM Punk is for real. He beat a legitimate guy in his first fight out." It, it would be amazing. It would be amazing if he somehow managed to win and and terrible for Gall, but it'd be the much more interesting story. I just don't see how he wins, how he wins this fight, and I haven't had any no he's. We haven't seen anything of him in a real fight to give us any sort of incentive or idea that we should be on his side in picking the fight. What's crazy is if you look at the the rules for Cleveland, Ohio, when it comes to becoming a registered mixed martial artist, at least I want to say it was two amateur fights had to have won your last amateur fight. Um, something that uh, something along those lines. Either way, CM Punk didn't meet the standards of being considered a professional mixed martial artist and still got and the governing body used his professional wrestling as reasoning to say he's had similar experience to Brock Lesnar. Now, let's completely ignore the fact that Brock Lesnar had a fight outside the UFC before he fought in the UFC. Let's ignore the fact that Brock Lesnar was a world-class collegiate wrestler 
they use CM Punk's professional wrestling as a reason to say he is qualified enough to get inside the octagon, I think that shows how off the rails this event has gone and how far left this card has gone. Like, no one understands. Yeah, he's been in professional wrestling, hit with chairs, jumped off ladders, put two through tables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. I understand that. But than someone and elbowing you until another human being pulls them off of you. That's totally different. And I think that the, just the fact that he has no experience whatsoever and they still found a way to license him speaks volumes to the situation as a whole. I, I get your point, but it, it's hard for me when people start taking like, and I'm not saying you're doing this, when people kind of take that MMA's it's it's attacking the authenticity of it. It's attacking the purity of it. How dare they do this? And everybody gets mad at CM Punk. Nobody's getting mad at the UFC. The UFC came up with this farce. They came up with this, and they're supporting this. the The Super Bowl, the Super Bowl of MMA decided that a guy who's got no amateur or professional experience should be on the main card. That's essentially like saying the Super Bowl is deciding that they're going to take paid Manning out and put me in to start for the Denver Broncos in last year's Super Bowl. And and worse yet, I can't I can't really even get on the side of the MMA fighters because Mickey Gall, if you want to really say I respect the purity and authenticity of MMA as a sport, then Mickey Gall doesn't call out CM Punk. He says, I want to go to the UFC and he calls out somebody with the name. But he didn't do that. He's looking for a way in. He's looking for a payday. He's looking for an opportunity to maximize his his brand his story and his skills. And he took it in the form of facing a guy who for all intents and purposes, as I've said many times before, may not actually be a better fighter and a better fighter than I am right now. And if I, if I, he, Mickey Gall wouldn't fight me. He, he wouldn't, he wouldn't call me out because I'm nobody and it wouldn't be fair because he's a professionally trained fighter at a professional camp. Who's at least got years of experience of training and got two professional fights under his belt. He wouldn't call me out because it'd be a mismatch. But he called out another guy who is going to be a mismatch against because it gets him in the UFC and it gets him paid and it gets him a chance to develop a brand that can possibly get him in with bigger guys for, for better fight opportunities that can, can extend his career and hopefully put him in a position to be a contender. So everybody's, everybody's shortchanged the authenticity and the purity of the sport. But the only, buddy, only person who seems to be catching any flag for it is CM Punk. And it's not his fault. He's taking on a challenge. He's taking on a challenge that essentially he can't win. He's facing an unbeatable opponent. He's basically Batman trying to fight Superman. Mickey Gall is like Superman fighting Batman. It's like you're a bully, dude. You're gonna if he, if he knocks him out and he's running around the cage screaming and pumping his fist and hitting his chest. I mean, like, are you really gonna be like? You know what I'm saying? Like, how impressive is that? You beat up a guy. Oh, see, I, I, I can agree with you there. Um. I can agree with you on that, but there's one thing that kind of stands out to me. Gall, um, he's a, yes, he's a professional fighter. He's a prize fighter, though. His job is to go out there and make the most amount of money possible. And in doing so, in calling out CM Punk, he's put himself in a position to make probably more money 
I would say 80% of the people that fight on Saturday. And the thing is, CM Punk is going to make the most. He's going to make the most money out of this event in his first UFC um, or his first MMA fight of all time. And CM Punk's probably going to be within the top three, top four, because I think that the two guys in the main event will get the most, and then and Mickey Gall will be right behind them. Just because um, – and I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at him for that. If any, if anything, you're right. The UFC does deserve a lot of criticism for making this call. Um, you can't even compare it to like the James Tony Randy Couture fight from years ago, because at least Tony was a world champion boxer, you know. So you can't even really complain it to that. Compare it to that, but I would have loved to have been in the boardroom when they made the decision that this would be a good idea. Um, they're going to make a lot of money from it. People are going to buy. I don't know if this helps the long-term validity of people who they think will have joined the cause or joined the viewership from professional wrestling. Will this card keep them attractive long-term? I doubt it. I understand why they did it. I just wish that... Well I, yeah, that's what I'm. That's all I'm saying. I'm not blaming Gall. I'm not blaming Punk. I'm not really blaming anybody. But my whole thing comes in whenever a fan or fighter keeps on telling me, you know, it's about the purity. We're real. We're real fighters. You know, actors want to get paid and they don't do anything, and singers want to get paid and they don't do anything. And then you actively hear fighters going for paydays, and you actively hear fighters saying they're ta- they're the fighter is saying this themselves. I could fight this guy, who's a much tougher guy. But I want the money fight. I get it. It's a short career. I get it. It's more dangerous than these other than these other jobs and these other fields of service. I, I get that. But when you're talking about the purity of a sport, there's no and to get to the Super Bowl, you can't avoid anybody. The Dallas Cowboys don't get a Super Bowl shot because they're the most popular team. The New England Patriots might have be in an easy division. But they have to play all the teams in the playoff to get there. Same thing with the Final Four. You have to beat other qualified, higher or lower ranked teams, but ranked and established teams, and you have to follow those rankings to get to your title shot. And every MMA guy keeps talking about the purity and this, this, this. But then when it comes, then when they to 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 make their argument, but the minute they get away from that, then it's like, oh well, I got to make the money fight. I've got to take care of my kids. I got to take care of my bills. Hey, I get that. But just last month, when you weren't in this position, you weren't talking that stuff. You were like, he should fight me because I'm the ranked guy. I'm the number one contender. I earned my spot now. Give it to me. And now that you got the title, you don't want to give somebody else their shot because that doesn't help your bottom line. So I don't care if you want to stay on one side or the other, but just don't flip-flop and then get upset when I call you out on being a flip-flopper. Don't tell me, you know, I'm all about a warrior and I'm about facing the best. That's why I came to the UFC. And then called out CM Punk, like all the other UFC guys did. Don't tell me that Conor McGregor is easy work. And then call him out. If you want to fight the best, why don't you just fight the best? If you want easy work, just say it. Just say you're playing it smart. Floyd Mayweather says that. He goes, I'm playing it smart. I'm protecting my career. I'm making the right moves for Floyd Mayweather. He's honest and open about it, and everybody gives him crap. But then you have all these other MMA fighters and boxers who kind of dance around and tiptoe and then change their stance, and then they get mad because they get flack from the fans. I don't have a problem with him. He's always said that. King Mo Lawal, I don't have a problem with him. He's always said that. But some of these other guys, I'm a warrior. I'll fight to the death. I'll fight, I'll fight a bear if you put him in there. Uh, nah, you'll fight a bunny if they'll pay you more. You won't fight the bear. And just say that. Just admit it. Stop 
portraying yeah. this. And I was saying that that's some pretty interesting, um, pretty pretty interesting information. I'm not trying to attack them. I'm just there's something I notice in these interviews. I just notice it. You change the position, and all of a sudden their whole stance changes. Just be honest about it. Say you want to make money. Say you want to take care of your family. Say you're in this to get paid. Just be honest. Conor McGregor is. That's why I like him. Floyd Mayweather is. That's why I like him. But these guys who keep telling me they want war and they really don't want it, uh, I mean, I'm still a fan of your fight skills, but I can't really be a fan of you because you're taking stances when they're convenient for you, and that's not cool. You get mad at fans for doing it because we're flip-flopping fans. We're hot and cold. We like you one minute, we don't. Well, you're flip-flopper because one minute you're a soldier who's going to fight to death. The next minute you're a businessman who wants to get paid the most. Which, which one is it? Very interesting, man. Very interesting breakdown there. Um, so let's talk about the for the fight, man. Main event, Steve Miocic. I would like to see Overeem win the title. I'm not even going to front. I, don't ha- I like both of these guys um, from a long-term MMA fan point, point of view. I am looking at Overeem to win. I would, I would appreciate seeing that just um, before we, you came on. Who was the greatest time? And if Overeem wins tomorrow night, or excuse me, Saturday night, he definitely has a valid stake. But... Um, this is a tough fight. I think it's a tough fight for both men. Overeem has the uh, ability to strike with anyone in the heavyweight division, especially as he's gotten more patient and um, more calculated in his attacks to kind of keep his steam four or five rounds. I think that Stipe, the longer this fight goes, the more it favors uh, Stipe in, in, in the end. Just got think he'll have more in the championship rounds. Uh, but I am I'm going to make a pick in this. I really, I'm not sure who to, who to go with, but um, here, a good fight for heavyweight MMA is much, much, much better than a lot of the showcases that they put out there when it comes to the biggest division in the sport. Yeah, it, I mean, if Overeem wins it, he will probably be the most accomplished heavyweight fighter in MMA history. I mean, he would have won titles in other organizations for MMA. He would have been considered top five in multiple organizations. He's won he was a world champion in MMA, a world champion in kickboxing, and then he became the, if he wins, he'd become the champion in the biggest organization in MMA. I mean, he'd be like Dan Henderson level of legitimacy as far as like his resume of who he's fought, win or lose, and the accomplishments and ranking he's had in multiple organizations. Like, you couldn't even argue that he'd be an all-time great, if not the very best heavyweight in history. I mean, it'd be hard, it'd be hard to argue that. It would be really hard to argue to go against that. Um, it goes, the biggest thing I, I like about Overeem is he's actually started using, Overeem's one of, like I said earlier about Barnett, Overeem's a guy who has the full tool set. There's no one clear way of victory in beating him. People can say you just hit him on the chin, but that's never as easy as you think it is. You can't just take him down because he's a very good grappler. He's great in transition. You can't just pressure him because he can move. He's got footworks, angles, and pivots. He can walk you into big shots. And if you just rush in, he can tie you up and literally eviscerate you with knees and short punches and elbows. And if you stay at range, he can pick you apart, leg kicks, head kicks, uh, lead rights, shifting hooks. He, he's got every major area of MMA covered. The only thing that's hurting him at this stage is, A, he still can't really take a shot very well, and, B, his athleticism is on the decline. Now, he's come up with a style that 
match that because now he baits you in with movement and then he counters you with big shots or he baits you in, he takes you down or he baits you in and he ties you up and starts going to work in the inside with those clinches and, and punches and elbows and knees. But essentially he has a little, he has less room from, he has less room for error because he can't, he can't take punishment. He really can't take shots the way he used to. And he is never a guy who could take a good shot. I mean, he, he's had light heavyweights knocking him out before. So I think the thing that Stipey needs to do is be an aggressive counterpuncher. He can't let it be a slow pace. He can't let Overeem dance around the cage. He's got to step with him. When he steps back, step over and hit that angle and cut the cage down and force Overeem to fight. Actually pressure him and kind of force him to throw certain things to create space so he can escape. Because if you can force him to throw certain techniques, because when you're in certain positions, you can only throw certain strikes effectively with power so you can figure out which strikes he likes to use you can essentially set up a counter and walk him right into a shot and a regular guy with a good chin like word verdum he could walk into a big shot and still keep coming like he did against stipey it took one or two maybe three clean shots to put him down a guy like overeem overeem just never had the biggest chin and if he can catch overeem on the counter he'll drop him he'll hurt him and you'll put him away quick. Overeem is just not very good at taking punishment. When he gets even fresh, when he's fresh, he's easy to knock out. If you land, and when he's tired, he's easier than knocking a cup off the counter. That's how shaky his chin is. The question is, does Stipey have the discipline? We know he has the conditioning and the cardio, but he has the discipline to apply volume and intense but deliberate pressure, not wild pressure, not wild punches, not running straight in and exchanging power shots and trying to wear him down, that's not going to work. He's going to run into a shot and get finished. He's going to get taken down and submitted. He needs to use deliberate pressure, draw an attack from Overeem, and land a counter. I would suggest getting on his jab consistently, up and down Overeem's body, and working up and down Overeem from head to toe, and working that body. Take away that gas tank. Take away those legs. And a shaky chin with no legs is even worse than a, than a shaky chin with full power legs. Catch him on the counter. When he gets rocked, overwhelm him and finish him. I actually think Stipey's got a good enough chin, and I think he's got good enough footwork, a good enough jab, and a good enough work rate that he's going to be able to enact that plan. Uh, it's hard for me to pick over him because even though he has the skills, he's got to go through five rounds without getting clipped at all. Because every time he's taking a hard shot, you've seen a noticeable change in his intensity and his aggression and his movement. And I think at some point, Stipey's going to be able to put that on him one he'll land that big counter and when he gets hurt he's going to pour it on and he's essentially going to overwhelm over him is what i'm thinking but as stated by friend of the show connor rebush um he's never faced a guy of over caliber with those with every single tool in the kit so it's going to take a masterful performance from him from a guy who's not going to give him the opportunities he wants he's going to have to create the opportunities as i told connor earlier today on twitter he's got to create it or he's got to make Overeem give him the opportunities to score and give him the opportunities to wear him down and give him the opportunities to push the pace and break him down. He's got to show that kind of discipline. And he hasn't had to show it before. He's faced a bunch of guys who want war, who are coming to fight, who are coming to bang, and are fairly one-dimensional. Mark Hunt, uh, Santos, even Werdum is, is kind of wild in how he fights. He's going to be fighting a measured, experienced, professional, mentally tough guy who's got every single skill you need to dominate at the world-class level, which means Stipey's got to show a tremendous amount of heart and show a tremendous amount of discipline to pull it off. I believe he can do it, but if he 
has a second where he gets too wild or he starts to lose faith or he starts to lose gas, uh, Overeem's going to take over and Overeem's going to win a tight decision. But I think Stipe wins. I think Stipe actually might stop him somewhere between the third and fourth round, actually. I'll take that as a call there. We already talked about um, – we already talked about – who did we talk about? We talked about Mickey Gall and Mickey Gall and CM Punk. Fabricio Verdun versus Travis Brown. Does this fight go the same way it did the first time around? Essentially, it should. But the thing about it is, is where is Travis Brown is actually his overall striking is never going to be textbook. He's just like he's an he's like OSP. He's an athlete with some basic skills. But what I have noticed is he's shown a little bit more poise and he's willing, he's been a little bit more effective off the counter. And the thing about Verdum is as good as he is, he's a big, strong guy with a, with a diverse range of attacks from knees to punches to kicks with his stand-up. But the thing about it is, how can I put this? Uh, another friend of the show, Patrick Wyman, another analyst, he actually is trained with um, at King's MMA and the thing that he often says about Cordero is Cordero builds his self-confidence in his guys that no matter what that guy does, you can walk through it. You can take his shot and counter it. You can take his shot and, and get your hands on him and get that takedown. You can take that shot and clinch him and rough him up. Whatever that guy does, you can handle it, and then you can return it tenfold. And that's very good because it takes away that fear and that tentativeness that can get you caught early or walked down and beat up. But at the same instance, when you get caught, your first thing is to get right back on that guy and against a guy who's comfortable countering and is willing to sit down and really put some torque on that punch, it's going to get you knocked out. Now against a Cain Velasquez, who he ran at, Cain Velasquez isn't a sharp enough puncher. His defensive and counter footwork isn't good enough. He can't find the range. He can't get the torque. He can't plant and then move to land his shots. Against a Stevie Miocic, who can move back and punch while moving and maintain the right range and maintain and get the right timing, that fight basically short-changed, ended his night short. And Steepy's not a killer puncher. He's no Mark Hunt. He's no DeSantis with his power. But his ability to move and circle and time and set his feet and hit and move back again was textbook. And Verdum got over-anxious over and he got KO'd. Most likely, he just beats up Travis Brown because Travis Brown's defense is suspect. His offense is iffy, but his ability to counter and his explosiveness and athleticism gives him an opportunity to win this fight if Wardoom goes nuts again and just starts trying to push the pace. And anytime you sting Wardoom or you put something on him early, he tries to get that back ASAP. And in trying to get that back, you can catch him as he'll break his stance, he'll lunge, he'll get off balance, he'll run full force. And if you can time it right, that counter right hand is going to be there for anybody who is willing to stand their ground and throw it. I just don't know that Travis Brown is willing to. He, he seems a little skittish under pressure, but I, I still think he has that ace in the hole. Most likely the fight goes the way it did last time, but I, I tend to think that that, that, la that that knockout took something out of Verdum, and if, if Brown can land a good shot on him, he can really turn around the fight and he can finish him. It's just a matter of if Brown's willing to stand his ground under duress and under pressure. If he's, if he's been working specifically on landing the counter shots, when Verdum begins his assault because you know it's going to happen he's not going to stay at range and pick you apart once he starts landing he's going to start 
ramping it up, ramping it up, getting in closer, pushing you back, and wearing you out. So he's going to have opportunities to land that counter shot. It's just a matter of whether he's got the durability to last and the composure and the guts to pull the trigger when the opportunity arises. Because a lot of guys didn't. They ran away from him. They swung wildly where new. Steve P took a step back, bam, hit him. He kept coming, took another step back, bam, hit him again. It takes poise and composure. And Travis Brown has never shown any of those things when he's facing a guy who's not afraid to fight back against him. Yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not going to um, argue those points there. I think that I, I'm hoping that this fight goes the same just so we can kind of, you know, keep the narrative going in the heavyweight division. And um, as next, if we gets back into that title picture, else is scheduled for Saturday. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Uriah Faber and Jimmy Rivera, man. That fight jumps off the page. It's not getting a lot of coverage, but uh, it's going to be a crazy uh, a crazy fight. Yeah, I, I, ha- I have to admit, um, I know a lot of people don't like Uriah Faber. They think he's kind of a phony, and, he, and he's, they, everybody, everybody says he loses to all the champions. You know, it, you can't argue that he loses the champions. He, he, he's always he's Ryan Bader or... Alexander Gustafson, he always loses when he gets to the title fight. But you have to admit, the guy is never afraid to face whoever they put him in against. It doesn't matter if the guy's a low-ranked guy who's a high-risk, high-risk, re- high low-reward guy or a high-risk, high-reward guy. Anybody you say, you say, favor, this guy wants to fight you, will you fight this guy? He will sign the contract any and every time. It doesn't matter if it's Dominic Cruz, Alex Caceres, or Jimmy Rivera. Faber's willing to take a fight, and I have to commend him for that as a fighter. A lot of guys talk that talk about, I'll fight any time, anywhere, and I won't ever run from a fight. There's very few fighters who actually live up to that that talk that they give us, who are, who are actually about the life that they say they are, and Faber's one of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to favor him because I still think experience matters. I don't think he's as fast as he used to be. I don't think he's as quick as he used to be. But it seems to me, anytime he's not fighting in a world championship fight, he seems to fight smarter. He seems to flash skills and strategies that he doesn't always show against the very best guys. And I don't know if the very best guys are taking it away from him or for some reason he just chose, chooses to go back with what he's always done, which hasn't worked. When Faber wants to, he's got an excellent jab. He can control guys with his jab. He can set his power up with his jab. He can set his takedowns up with his jab. He can get guys into clinches and transitions all off his jab and his movement. But it seems to be when he faces the better guys, he always gets away from that and he starts getting wild and he starts getting one-dimensional and he stops push, He starts loading up on power shots and he gets countered and he runs into shots and he gets taken down and he gets outworked and he gets outclassed when he, he faces the elite. I don't know that Jimmy Rivera is elite. I know he's a very good athlete. I know he's a very good striker. I know he's got heart and he's got class, but I have no idea what he does when he faces a guy who actually – can put him in bad spots, a guy who can work out of a bad spot, a guy who's not just going to collapse when that pressure is put on him. One thing Faber has never done is just quit. You've never seen Faber quit. You've never seen Faber stop trying. You've never seen Faber just concede bad positions and concede exchanges or concede engagements because he's losing. He's a guy who's willing to fight and take it to the very end. And when you haven't faced that guy, it's hard for me to say, that you're going to just walk through that guy just because you're younger and you have 
you have more of an upside at this stage. To me, experience still matters. Cage IQ still matters. And against everybody except the very elite guys, Faber has constantly shown good cage IQ, good pace control, competent striking, excellent wrestling, and beyond excellent submissions. If you get in a scramble favor, he usually finishes you. He, he's one of the, as far as MMA goes, he's one of the best submission guys of all time. Probably top five, five as far as submissions and the quality of guys he's actually submitted. So until he starts losing to below elite guys, until he loses to Rivera, I, I can't go against him. He's never lost to a guy who's not elite. He hasn't lost to a guy who's not elite, who's unelite ever. Not his entire career. Every guy he's beaten is at some point been elite. Rivera's not there yet. And he'd have to beat Faber to get there. And I don't think he can do it. Faber's lost a step, but he's still got the guts. He's still got veteran savvy. And he's still got the best submission from transition in MMA. He gets in a, tra- he gets in a scramble with you. It can be over that quick. Ask any number of guys he's faced. So I'm going to go with Faber just based off of man. He's going to know how to control the pace. And he's going to know how to walk the younger guy down. The guy has energy. The guy has class. But... He hasn't been pushed. He hasn't faced a guy who will push back. He hasn't faced a guy who won't concede. And he hasn't faced a guy with that sort of creativity in um, grappling exchanges. And I think that's going to be the difference. Um, I like that. I like that analysis that you gave me there. Um, yeah, Uriah is definitely someone who. He loses to elite fighters, like you said, but he does look different when he's fighting someone who's not quite on that that level. So I could definitely agree with you there. Other fights that are standing out to me, we have Jessica Andrade and jo- um, Joanne. Andrade looked like a looked like I almost said she looked like a home record, but that's not. I didn't mean that <laughs> quite in the home record terms because, but man, she, when she fought, you better, you better put you back if she's in Chicago, man, because she might hear this. So you might have problems. <laughs> Like I, I said home record, but I didn't mean it that way. But what she did to Jessica Panay definitely blew her face up. And she looks scary at 115 pounds, man. If she does, which is very like I think that that may go down again. Um, what's, for, what's with her in, in this straw weight? Uh, that's somebody that can make a run towards a title shot? I'm kind of split on Andrade because I've never been impressed with her cardio. I, I think she's a tough, skilled fighter, but a lot of her thing is volume and physicality. And it didn't work at Bantamweight because the girls were there, were comparable size, and some of the holes she has defensively got exposed it, that, that way when she couldn't manhandle people, when she couldn't walk through people, when she couldn't overwhelm people. She comes to straw weight, and everybody's going to talk about the Jessica Panay win, and everybody's going to say she looks – she looks spectacular against Panay. She looks incredible against Panay. And this is probably going to get me in trouble, but Panay's, Panay's just not that good. She's not very durable. She's not a very hard hitter. She doesn't recover from damage well. Defensively, on the feet, she's like a heavy bag. She has a jab. She has range. But she always throws it away to get in these ridiculous exchanges that she can't possibly win. She's done it repeatedly. She did it on tough against Esparza. She was handling Esparza with that jab and movement, and then she just threw it out the window. People say Esparza made an adjustment, which she didn't. Panay just started fighting dumb. She's grappling with somebody, knowing you're on the bottom. You know, it's very hard to finish from the bottom. You're getting outworked and you're losing rounds. She's She's got bad IQ. And then they had her fight Andrade just after she got beat within an inch of her life versus 
Joanna versus the champion. Joanna beat her. I mean, people have been put in jail for the kind of beatings that she laid on Jessica Panay. She hasn't recovered from that. She, do, she doesn't belong in this division. She's too small with the hole she has and the subpar wrestling she has. She's too small to be in this division. She's not good enough. She's not strong enough. She's not athletic enough. She's not technical enough. So when Drudge beating up on a girl who's her inferior in almost every single aspect of fighting doesn't prove anything to me. I mean, it's great that she did it, but at this stage, Panay is getting walked through by a lot of people at Strawweight. So that, that didn't impress me as much. I mean, it was great for her, but I, I saw that fight coming from miles away. Against Calderwood, it's going to be tougher because Calderwood's the best stand-up fighter that Andrade has faced. And Andrade might have some advantages because she's bigger and stronger at this division, but she's still not a power puncher. She's a volume puncher. She breaks you down. She overwhelms you. She chops you up, and if, if you can't hang – into round two and three, that's when she wears you out. I'm not saying she can't stop somebody early, but generally she's not a, she's not a killer puncher. If she was a killer puncher, which Joanna's not a killer puncher either because if they were, they would have knocked Panay out round one. Panay just, in my opinion, doesn't have the chin or durability to, to really stand in there with the one-punch KO-type fighter. Against heavy-handed people, against volume people, she'll get beat up, but she can hang in there. And I think JoJo Calderwood actually gets better as the rounds go on. The best chance to do it is to catch her early. But I don't know that Andrade is a sharp enough or explosive enough puncher to do, to do that. I mean, uh, essentially this fight reminds me of the JoJo-Courtney Casey fight where Casey came out, except Casey is more explosive and, in my opinion, hits a lot harder and is a lot faster. She'll put it on her early. JoJo's going to find some way to survive. She always does. And then she'll start working in the fight, and she'll start chopping away at Andrade. And Andrade's conditioning, I don't think it's going to hold up at straw weight if she, has the, if she has an opponent who pushes back, who takes, who takes her measure and can push back on her. I don't think her stamina holds up. I don't think her defense is good enough to hold up. She covers up her shaky defense with a lot of volume and a lot of aggression, which is fine if you catch people and overwhelm them. It's really terrible if you have somebody who can tie you up, put knees on you, who can hit you with teeps to the stomach, who can throw back real power. And somebody who makes adjustments and moves forward in the fight. Someone who's physical and can take punishment and apply punishment. That style doesn't work. That style does not work against somebody who can do those things. And JoJo Calderwood has made a career of doing those things. The only risk is that JoJo Calderwood has leaned on her chin and her recuperation abilities to get her through at least two or three fights since she's been in the UFC. So you wonder when that clock's going to hit 12 and that's going to be a wrap on that. But if her chin's still there and her ability to recover is still there, and it seems like it is based on her last fight, she looked good. She looked healthy. She looked like she was a little bit sharper defensively. She looked like her, her hands were a little bit sharper, and she's a little bit more deliberate in her offense. If she's taking another step forward, I think she beats Andrade. I think Andrade gets off early, and then midway through the round one, towards the end of round one, JoJo starts coming on, and towards two and three, JoJo starts turning the fight and starts putting it on her. And if Andrade gets in a bad position – where she's taking a beating and she's not able to control the pace and dictate the physicality of the fight, I think she might quit. I think she might tap out. I think she might give up a submission or just cover up and have the ref stop her. That's been, that's been my take on her. When she's good, she's great. But when somebody can take that initial burst and they can start pushing back and they can start making her work and put her in bad positions, she hasn't been spectacular. She is not. She has not been. I think she fought Zingano, dominated her, was putting it on her. Zingano got on top, lasted, Andrade slowed a little bit, and Zagana just started beating her, started beating her like, like your mom would beat you if you told her, no, I ain't cleaning my room, get out. So 
I, I think that's what's going to happen if Calderwood's chin and her recuperation abilities are still there because early on, Andrade's going to put a lot of volume on her or she's going to attempt to. And if, if Dojo comes out cold, it's very likely she gets, she gets hit and gets finished. But she's always worked her way through, and I'm just going to I'm gonna bet that given on history, she's going to work her way through again and uh, walk Andrade down and, and beat her. Yeah, that's definitely some um, good analysis there. Andrade has um, shown some issues with her gas tank in the past. So, yeah, that's definitely something to... She, did um, she, had, gas tank, she had gas tank issues 20 pounds heavier. And now she's at a lighter weight. Yeah, she's probably in better shape. But usually when your cardio is shaky, it doesn't get better when you get lighter. <laughs> like, unless you're massively overweight. When you're in good shape and you have shaky cardio, dropping a weight class usually doesn't help it. Might in her case, but against Penne, she was just pitching, not even having to catch. She was just beating up Penne. Anybody can look like a cardio machine when all you're doing is whooping someone's behind. The question is, what happens when you start whooping them and they start putting it back on you? And that's where I think that's where she's going to start slipping up. Good points, man. Good points. Um, what do you think about this Besh Kohea jessica I fight? I think the loser of this fight gets cut from the UFC. I agree. The, the weird thing is, I've been I've been – I'm actually a fan of Jessica I. Unfortunately, she lost to Misha Tate like when when she had a chance for the title shot versus Ronda. And the real unfortunate thing is like months before her, I told her exactly what Misha Tate was gonna do to her. And some of her people actually were arguing with me on Twitter. I'm like, you can tell me whatever you want. I'm telling you what's gonna happen, and it happened. And had she listened to me, it might have gone a little bit better for her. I I'm serious about it. I'm dead serious. This happened on Twitter. And I like Jessica I. She's actually very athletic. She's quick-footed, quick-fisted. She's got, she's got good striking. She's got good transitional striking. She's got good transitions on the ground. The thing about it is she can't she – she loses focus. She can't be consistent. And in her inconsistency, she gets beat by lesser athletic fighters. And the thing about it is she's probably not big enough to be abandoned weight. She should be fighting a weight class down where those errors wouldn't have such disastrous results. But the thing about it is she wants to fight abandoned weight, which means she has less for, margin for error and she just can't consistently put rounds together. She has moments of brilliance, and then she just goes away from something works. She's jabbing, stepping out, closing the door with the hook. It works three times in a row. She ain't going to do it four times in a row. She's going to stop doing it. Her opponent can't get past her jab. She'll be jabbing him up, jabbing him up, jabbing him up. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm making it too easy. Let me, get, let me, let me throw away my jab and then let them take over. Oh, I, I'm pushing the pace and outworking them? Okay, I'm dominating them. Uh, let me uh, throw a stupid strike or give up a takedown that'll end my momentum and essentially lose me the fight. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And I always talk to her coach, and I've talked to him repeatedly, and I'm like, how does she keep doing this? Every single fight she's been in, it's been a basic blueprint for her to win. Work your jab. Use transition. Use your, use your strikes up and down the body. Com combine your strikes, punching and kick. Get in, get out off an angle. Bait your opponent, have them come in, counter them, push them back. Use your movement, use your speed, use your quickness, use your jab, use your boxing. It's not the best, but it's much better than 90% of the women in Bantamweight MMA. But she refuses to do it consistently. She'll do it for a second, and then she'll totally give up on it. And she'll let people dictate pace and dictate physicality and dictate range when she has all the physical and technical school skills to do so. And she just refuses to. It's not like they're even doing anything to stop her. She just stops doing it. And if she does it against Betch Kohea, Betch is going to run her over. Betch is slow. 
She's got slow feet. She doesn't have really good hands or athleticism. But what she does is she puts a lot of volume on you. She is very strong. She is very tough. And she will punish the body. She gets inside on you and she gets her hands on you. She will chop you in half. Even with limited athleticism, Betch and her coaches are smart enough to know when you have a so-so athlete, you don't have them swinging bombs and doing spinning kicks and spinning back fists and all this nonsense. That's not going to work. They're not fast enough. They're not quick enough. They're not explosive or fluid enough to do it. What you do is you put pressure on your opponent. You either draw out a striking counter or you put pressure and you start working the body. You start chopping them down and work from the body up and from the head down and you take away that gas tank, you take away that explosiveness, you take away that confidence, and you slowly make it a fight of desire and physical toughness. And people who've always been better athletes oftentimes concede when they can't out-athlete a person who figured them out and started taking, making their athleticism not a factor. So Betch is actually very smart. She knows where her key strengths are. You don't see her bouncing around the outside trying to jab and slip and and pull counter and check hook people. She knows that's not her game. She's tightened up her entries. She's tightened up her, her defense and her offense so she can get inside without eating all sorts of uppercuts and hook, check hooks and jabs and lead rights. And now she gets in there and she goes to work on you. And she's tightened up her hands a little bit. Her boxing's a little bit sharper. Her punches on the inside are a little bit sharper. Her control isn't textbook, but she's strong enough to get by with the the double double collars that she uses and the underhook she uses to gain control on somebody. And so it really comes down to a matter of, is Jessica I going to show excellent cage IQ? Is she going to use the full set of skills she has and maximize her actual athletic abilities? All she has to do is keep Betch from getting on that clinch and pushing her against the cage. Betch isn't beating her at range. If she stays on her jab she works her angles, comes in and out on angles. She jabs her offense and defense and sets up her strikes with the jab, sets up kicks off the jabs, sets off punches off the jabs, jabs into the hook. There's so many things that you can hit Betch with because Betch is an inferior athlete who's only got one or two key areas, really only one key area she's a force in. She's not a great grappler. She's not a great wrestler. She's a punishing inside clinch fighter who is big, strong, and tough and sets a huge pace and builds on it. That's what she does. Raquel Pennington was outworking her at range. She got in on Pennington, because Pennington's not a great athlete either, and made it into a brawling, ugly, nasty fight between two people who didn't have the athleticism to end it with one big shot or to put together a huge combination. So the question is, has I developed the discipline and consistency to pull this off? I want to say yes, because I always pick her because it's such an easy blueprint. In every single one of her last fights, she could have won them by following that blueprint. But for some reason, she never does it, and I don't know why. And um, I want her to win, but there's, there's a good chance she loses this fight. Betch needs a win, and Betch has actually performed better against a higher caliber of athlete. I mean, except for the Ronda Rousey fight, Betch has never really been dominated. She's never been crushed, and her and I have essentially beat the same level of person. So, I mean, it's 50-50 on the, the resumes. It's a big favor in I as far as athleticism and overall skills. But in the case of cage IQ and durability and ability to focus on the goal and stick to a game plan, I hasn't, I hasn't done that in years. She has not done that in years, and she's lost a of shots and ranking because of it. Yeah, that's definitely some, um, some good breakdowns there. I do apologize. For sure. Uh, let's... Continue down the card here, and let's look at some other fights that stand out. I think um, 
Yancey Medeiros is someone who kind of has caught my eye. So what are your thoughts on that bout? He's someone that I think that is kind of, you know, ready to turn a corner at, at some point. So um, what do you think? Uh, I, I, I think he's got all the tools. It just seems like he, he's got all the physical skills. He wants to fight. It just seems like his in-between game isn't, isn't established enough. I think Sean Spencer has good footwork and a good jab. And with somebody like Madero, who throws a lot of volume, but there's a lot of he doesn't he doesn't know how to close range consistently behind a jab or with foot or pressure with the footwork. It's all these spinning strikes and big loaded up strikes to close the distance and get hands on people. I feel like he can turn the corner. I just don't know that he he's made the minor adjustments. He needs to make minor adjustments to get to the corner. Luckily for him, he's facing Spencer, who often does just enough to lose. He he won't take any chances. He won't. He won't push your pace. He won't go for the finish. He'll try to outbox you and outslick you for three rounds, which is very hard to do when you're not a consistently slick defensive fighter, which he isn't. He he can he can be slick. He can get hit in other instances. So, but I, I still think he has enough to beat Madero's. All he's got to do is stay on his jab. Like I said, in and out on angles, stay on his jab and circle out. Madero's inability to navigate distance, offensively or defensively, defensively is a huge issue for me. And I think Spencer just needs to fight, fight a deliberate, disciplined fight to beat him. If anybody's going to get a finish, it should be Madero's because he's a finishing type fighter who makes a pace and a play for finishes. But if it goes three rounds, I, I can see Madero's getting worn down, just eating jabs and being out of position and whiffing and missing and chasing because he, he's not very good at cutting off the cage either. It's all volume and, and high, big play attacks. That's how he closes distance. That's how he, that's how he gets his work done. He doesn't have – if he was a football team, he'd have no running game and no, no short passing game. It's all 60-yard bombs or 60-yard runs, I guess. No sort of in-between game. And against a guy with Spencer's kind of discipline and jab, I think that's going to be the difference. Yeah, that's some good analysis there too as well, man. Good breakdowns there. Let's look at some of the questions that were sent to us um, headed into tonight. So the first question was about mixed martial arts and pro wrestling. Should the two – Forms of entertainment be at odds. In my opinion, the answer is no, simply because like people, people like me, that's how I got introduced to the world of MMA was through pro wrestling, kind of like an accident situation that happened with my mom. Um, she ordered uh, UFC two by accident and kind of got me hooked from there. But man, these two, the, the two worlds shouldn't be at beef with, with one another, especially, you know, when you look at the potential for crossover um, opportunities and the potential just for fans to be able to enjoy two aspects of combat sports and, and entertainment. Uh, what do you think about that? They should have an issue at all. I mean, MMA didn't exist coming up, and a lot of these MMA, MMA fighters, they steal their whole shtick from pro wrestling. Chael Sonnen with was stealing his whole act from pro wrestling. I don't care if he's being honest or being fake. The way he was delivering his information was pro wrestling. Conor McGregor essentially owes Ric Flair like a trademark infringement. Ric Flair should sue Conor McGregor for trademark infringement because that's all Conor McGregor did. He took Ric Flair's act and put it into a real-life competitive sport. All Conor McGregor does is wear gator skin shoes, the finest suits, fly on flying jets with bright lights and he's styling and profiling. I mean, it's a blatant ripoff. So I don't, I don't see how, I don't see how they should be at odds. A lot of people who watch MMA watch pro wrestling. I mean, all the only difference is pro wrestling is determined. MMA is not. 
they they do the very same thing. They build up storylines and they use bigger than life characters to sell their product. One's scripted, one's not. What else is the difference between them? Somebody tell me. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely some, um, some true points there. You know, some people would argue that MMA is scripted as well, too. It just depends on who you ask. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really just kind of depends on, on who you ask and it works out in the end. Uh, I hope that there is a way that the two, that the two groups can kind of work, not work together, but for new viewers and new um, financial opportunities in the, the, the long term. I think that, you know, that there's any need for one to kind of prove itself over the other. I just think that it's, it's a, it's, it's a good opportunity for um, just for two people to, or, or two opportunities to kind of see just a different perspective of the yeah. combat sports world. I will say one thing, high level pro, we've seen pro wrestlers compete in lower level MMA and do okay. We've seen pro wrestlers and Brock Lesnar might've been a national wrestler, but he got, he came to a claim as a pro wrestler. We've seen those guys do well in MMA. I've never seen a high level MMA guy even put on an even close to competent performance in pro wrestling. It's just a different world. So, I mean, if you want to go that way, we've already seen them come into your field and do all right. Some of those guys in pro wrestling are actually trained guys. You know, that doesn't exclude you from being a pro wrestler. So some of those guys have actually competed in boxing and kickboxing and MMA and done all right. I've never seen any any, wrestle, any MMA guy that I've known come into pro wrestling and perform with any sort of competence. And I'm not saying they couldn't do it. I just haven't seen it yet. I've seen pro wrestlers do MMA. MMA. I have not. I cannot say the same for MMA fighters in reverse. Yeah, I can definitely um, understand that there too. So final question of the day, Eddie Alvarez versus Conor McGregor. You know, these two are, uh, well, Alvarez is actually doing most of the talking now. And I think this kind of boils down to one of these guys trying to talk their way into another big fight. Um, uh, just because of the other plans that are in place for Alvarez, but, or excuse me, um, for, actually for both men, McGregor and Alvarez. But just looking at, at the... Um, at the card, who do you got here, man? Who do you think takes fight, or who do you think wins if they were to get into the cage against one another? Before Nate Diaz, I probably would have said Alvarez, but Nate Diaz, unfortunately for the rest of the MMA division, McGregor to become a better fighter. He actually forced him to diversify his approach, to stick to a game plan to not lean on his power and his timing and his durability and his volume and to actually range of his skills, which he used to use before and he got away from as he started walking through guys. He's actually approaching fights intelligently and with discipline and poise and maturity and not just going out there to murder people. That was the biggest hole in this game. He's actually addressing holes now because he understands how much money's on the line and he understands he's not going to be in this 10 and 20 years from now. So before, I would have clearly went with Alvarez. But um, I, don't, I don't think Alvarez can beat him at this stage unless he just goes strictly all out just wrestling. And um, even in that case, um, I, still think, I still believe in Conor McGregor's power. He dropped Nate Diaz like four times in that fight. And if you're not a legitimate 170 guy, I think he hurts legitimate 170 guys and – Alvarez isn't that. I think he, he touches Alvarez's chin. He puts Alvarez away. 
a knockout. I don't know. It'd be five rounds. I don't know when he'd do it. But um, I, I think he beats Alvarez by knockout, to be quite honest. He kind of showed me something. He showed me heart. He showed me grit. And he showed a diverse skill set and ability to, to make adjustments to go against his type of fight and his mental approach, which didn't shot, which which should worry everybody because it's not an e- it's not easy work anymore. You actually have to come out and beat him. He's not going to give you the recipe to beat him anymore. So I'm going with I'm going with McGregor at this stage. Yeah, I think it's, it'll be a, it, it would be an interesting fight. I think that um, like that fight against did force him to change his ways of fighting. It forced him to kind of evolve in a sense, and I believe he's become a smarter fighter. Um, I think he is at a, at a different point, and he's just going to look better and better uh, going forward. Uh, even though people, you know, hate him, people don't like him for the sport, I still think that he is uh, – I still think that he is someone that has an opportunity to offer a lot to the, uh, to the sport in the near future. That, that mental toughness would impress me. Diaz had him ready to go, and he came back the next round, and he did what he had to do to make it through, and he won the next round. And even in the fifth round, he fought smart. When he ran, he, he needed to run, he ran. When he needed space, he took space. Make a stand and fight back. He made a stand and fight back. When he was dead tired and Diaz was in the rounds, that the Diaz brothers usually take over, and that showed me something, man. I don't think Connor had that before. And usually after you have a loss, you kind of quit or you kind of fold. That becomes your trend, and Connor broke it. He got put in a tough situation again, and he fought through it. And, and that's what everybody kept saying. Oh, he'll, he'll just fold when you put that pressure on him. Maybe that was the case before, and it's not the case anymore. And those guys had to worry about that. He will fight to the bitter end now. There, I, don't know, I don't know that there's breaking him. You can submit him. You can knock him out, but you're not going to break him. Down to a matter of, of creativity and toughness and the desire, I don't know too many people who have more than Conor McGregor, especially with as much as he has to lose. He, he's just that sort of guy, and I think that's going to be the difference moving forward. Yeah, I can definitely get with you um, on that there, man. So let's go ahead and bring the show to a close. We had some great conversations about UFC uh, 203 this weekend, you know, where they can find you and they can find your um, commentary. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter. Like I said, I'm, I'm on there usually day to day. I'll probably go on a little rant or – or, or every day I'll kind of pick a fight or two or a coach and kind of break down where I think they've improved or where they haven't. Or maybe I'll find a fighter that a lot of people favor and I'll kind of give you a different perspective. Usually when fight nights come out, I kind of do running commentary on the fights. And if you have any questions or you have any, you know, kind of like, what do you think this means moving forward? Or what made you make this pick? What made you take this stance on this fighter? I'm always willing to discuss that. You can find me on Twitter at Black Jordan Green um, or just search under... Shawan Humes, like I said, I'm always there to be found because I love talking about combat sports and informing people. So if you can't get enough of me here, always find me on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, man, you always can. You can catch me at rgarcia underscore sports. Uh, be sure to check the website at mmaratings.net and check us out to rate all the sports, or excuse me, rate all the fights that go on this weekend. Uh, we will be back on Wednesday of next week, most likely, talking MMA, talking UFC 203, probably talking EBI 8, too. I'm not sure if you're going to catch that on Sunday. 
Um, but just talking a lot about combat sports and everything that we got going on uh, with the site. So as always, thank you, Shawan, and uh, have a great night, man. Hey, Raphael. You know, the, the one place nobody can catch you is at home because you're always doing something, man. So if they want to find you, don't go to his house. He will never be there. <laughs> if someone, yeah, someone's looking for me. I am not here. That is, that is, it's funny you say that. I'm not even taping the show at my place tonight. So, yeah, you're 100% right. All right. Well, you take it easy, man. Try not to, try not to work too hard. You ain't going to listen to me, but not to work too hard. Bro. All right, man. You take it easy. Have a good night, man.